Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So it's a pleasure and an honor to be here in the Scottsdale, Phoenix area. Well, we officially in Phoenix now or Scottsdale now? You're in Phoenix. Okay, so let me begin again. Hey, it's an honor to be here in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. Okay, wonderful. And as you've been introduced to me from the wonderful A.J. Frost, I am the author of the Passover Haggadah graphic novel. And I know your first question. Your first question is, a comic book? Really? You're turning the holy Jewish philosophy and theology and, and rituals into a comic book? This is appropriate? Well, tonight we're going to have a discussion about how not only is it appropriate, but in fact it was, shall we say, inevitable. But first, let's go into a little bit about my own background. So, uh, as AJ pointed out, my last name is Gorfinkel, and the first four letters of my last name form my nickname, which is Gorf, G-O-R-F. What is the next major holiday that's coming up, major Jewish holiday that's coming up? Purim, good. What happens after Purim? What's the next major one after that? Yeah, Pesach, of course. Okay. How many plagues? Ten. Ten. Good. What's the second plague? You've got to sing the song in your head to get there. Frog, right. What's frog backwards? <laughs> now you'll never forget me. Now we know why you do this. Yes, exactly, because I am a, an inveterate punster, much to the chagrin of my family. You know, uh, I, I believe that before they were dad jokes, they were probably Yiddish jokes. And dad jokes is just another way of saying it right now. So we have a little bit of a slideshow that we're going to show you, and I'm going to be a little descriptive because for those people who are listening and not necessarily seeing what's going on on screen, it'll help them to orient themselves. I was honored to be the editor of Batman Comics along with an incredible team. We called ourselves the Bat Guys, the editorial team, the Bat Guys. And uh, during a period of nearly a decade, we grew the franchise from two books a month to two books a week. We worked on over 2,000 stories about what I consider, and I think most people consider to be, one of the greatest characters in all of fiction and certainly one with the greatest longevity. And if you're interested to know why I think that is, we can certainly go into it. But as you can see on screen over here, I have some small illustrations of the various different types of projects that those stories were featured in. For example, comic books, toys, rides, movies, video games. My experience on Batman encompassed a storyline that ran through all the comic books, the continuity comic books, I should say, for calendar year 1999. And that storyline was called Batman No Man's Land. And of course, since my reason for being here tonight is not just as a comic book artist or writer, but also as a Jewish cartoonist, I should talk, probably tell you the source of this story. So in Batman No Man's Land, the storyline was that up till that point, we had had about 10 years worth of stories, maybe nine years worth of stories that had Gotham City falling into terrible dire straits. You had villains that were constantly destroying things. You had natural disasters. You had plagues. You had, uh, of course, the kind of soap opera and internal squabbles that happened and the politics that happened in a city like Gotham City, which is kind of an analog for, um, for New York lower than about back in the day, lower than about 34th Street. And in fact, by the way, that's an interesting little tidbit. Metropolis was New York above 34th Street, the brighter, shinier skyscraper type New York. And Gotham City was New York below 34th Street, the kind of seedier, lower slung uh, uh, cityscape. Uh, from, for, nowadays, it's not as uh, relatable, but if you picture 
New York in the 50s and 60s, you certainly get a, a strong idea for what the inspiration of these creators was for creating these fictional cities. And another interesting thing, of course, is that generally speaking, the world of DC comics, formerly national periodicals, for a long time DC comics, strange misnomer, if that's the right word, uh, DC stands for Detective Comics. So the name of the company is Detective Comics Comics. I never understood that. But anyway, DC Comics had fictional cities, analogs for real-world cities, and Marvel Comics lived more in the real world. So New York was New York. Queens is Queens. Uh, anyway, so in this storyline, Gotham is so beyond redemption that the United States government says, that's it, we've had it. We're going to give everybody 24 hours to get out of town, and then we're going to blow the bridges, and we're going to leave Gotham to, you'll forgive me, rot in its own hell. And uh, you'll notice that that story is not unlike the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where, and Batman is our Abrahamic figure, if you will, in which he has to come in, and despite God's desire, or in this case, the analog for God would be the United States government, um, not to say that we're supporting fascism or socialism. I'm not saying that, just want to be clear about that. So because uh, Gotham was, uh, uh, was being uh, threatened with demolition, you have this Abrahamic figure of Batman who has to wrestle with bringing back the city, saving the city from itself. And uh, this storyline, which we never thought was filmable because we figured, okay, it ran through uh, uh, how, how many pages? I think something like 1,600 pages. This was certainly a maxi story for the ages. So this storyline, I figured it'll, it'll be a fun way of bringing the structure of a novel, of a prose novel, to comic books. It'll have everything that a novel has. It'll have rising action, and B-plots become A-plots, and, uh, and you'll have characters with real stakes, because in a novel, which is a standalone, you can afford to kill off your characters because you don't need to bring them back week after week. Whereas with Batman, who has an 80-year history, or at that time, a roughly, I don't know what it was, 60, 65-year history, you never really believed that anybody was gone, dead, written out of the story, because, after all, they needed to come back next week so you could sell more of the funny books. Well, we thought, what if we actually treated this year as a true novel, a standalone novel, and anything could happen? And anything did. And one of the most amazing things that happened was it was a critical and commercial success, and uh, it became inspiration for the Christopher Nolan movie The Dark Knight Rises, the third in that trilogy. Uh, and surprisingly, very recently, in fact, right now, it's become the final season of Fox's show Gotham. And in fact, the last episode of season four, the cliffhanger episode, the season finale, was titled No Man's Land. So that's pretty remarkable that uh, in, 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 um, an introverted, shy, somewhat, uh, shall we say, uh, food-loving child growing up uh, well, you know what, I never really grew up. I'm kind of a Jewish Peter Pan. But getting larger at any rate uh, on comic books would then take that experience and turn it into an idea that would then become adaptable into billion-dollar earning multimedia productions. Pretty mind-blowing. But all of it, again, is because of my Jewish background. That if I hadn't, for example spent all of my Shabbats, all of my Sabbaths, sitting and reading comic books and being inspired by these heroic stories, it may not have happened. So without Shabbat, you wouldn't have had Gorf reading comic books, and then you wouldn't have had No Man's Land, and then maybe you wouldn't have had all the other stuff that followed. Okay, that's kind of a little bit mind-blowing. But uh, in addition to No Man's Land, another creation of mine is Birds of Prey, and you can see on the screen over here the DVD cover from the one-season-long series called Birds of Prey, which was featured on the late-lamented WB network. And my conception for that was that I wanted to create a female superhero team, and I wanted to do it respectfully. It was very important to me that women should be treated like real people, in comic books. And uh, many times, I'm not saying that the men can't be either, but many times the women are fetishized, is that the right word? 
uh, and, uh, and, and more uh, objectified than, uh, than really honestly makes me comfortable. So my conception for it was, okay, let's have two women, one of whom is physically challenged, another who, of whom is psychologically challenged, has had difficulties. Let's make them best pals. Let's have them team up together and do what women do, give each other moral support. One of them is the brains, one of them is the brawn, but together they form a bond that I've seen in women that I don't really see um, analogously, I'm using that word again, in men. And I thought that that would bring out a powerful dimension to superheroes that heretofore I had not seen. Uh, And uh, it seems to have worked pretty well. It seems to have... Uh, hit, uh, uh, struck a, a, a chord in, uh, in a positive way, in a, in a major key, because it became a TV series. And in February 2020, Warner Brothers will be releasing a major feature film called Birds of Prey starring Margot Robbie. And other conceptions that I had for the series, for example, was, you know, when women superheroes go out in cold weather, they should wear pants. I know that's a radical idea, but, you know, they might get cold. They're always running around in short shorts. Funny enough, so that's, again, my, kind of my Jewish morality uh, coming, coming into play over there. Uh, treating, again, treating everybody with equal respect, with, uh, with a, uh, uh, anyway. So um, uh, one of the curious things for me was as soon as I left the series, immediately she was in short shorts again. So it must not have been a Jewish person who was running it after I was gone. <laughs> no, all, all joking aside, no offense intended whatsoever. Uh, I'm gratified for all the support that DC has given uh, my conceptions and, by extension, my team's uh, conceptions over so many years. And even though I retired amicably from DC Comics a number of years ago, it's uh, really very gratifying to see that these ideas have lived on and continue to grow in the same way that the originators of Superman and Batman and so forth who were Jewish created their concepts, and they continue to grow, in fact, well after they have uh, shuffled off this mortal coil, but not because the Joker or Lex Luthor beat them. It was more natural causes. You see some of the uh, illustrations over here on the left are more applications of Birds of Prey that we've discussed. And then from there, I went, I parted amicably from DC Comics. I felt that I had done everything that I had set out to do and it was time to apply my comic book skills towards the larger world. So I created, along with a couple of the other Bat Guys, Avalanche Comics Entertainment, and the idea was let's use Batman-style storytelling for telling the stories and helping the messaging of corporations, of nonprofits, of foundations, and so forth. And you see some of the logos for companies that I worked with, like Alibaba, the uh, huge Chinese online marketplace, and American Greetings, uh, Warner Brothers, Clorox, Microsoft, and foundations like the Steinhardt Foundation and uh, the Munich Jewish Museum and uh, several more. We'll get more onto that. Microsoft asked me if I would create a superhero team for IT pros and developers. They have about 8 million strong, what they call their evangelists around the world. The people who drink the Microsoft Kool-Aid, they're the ones who used all the software and the programming and so forth to make the world a much richer place technologically. And they wanted to send a love letter, a, uh, forgive me, a Valentine's uh, card to that, that, uh, that backbone of their business. So we conceived of creating a superhero team of IT pros and developers who would go around the world and would solve problems. And uh, what we did was we crowdsourced. This was before uh, crowdsourcing was even really a thing. Uh, but we crowdsourced stories from these geniuses around the world because, after all, I mean, I, I consider myself to be a, a fairly uh, uh, not smart guy, but at least a creative guy. But it's tough to write about people who are much, much smarter than you are. So fortunately, it comes together. People who love technology tend to love superheroes as well, and uh, they generously lent us their stories, and we built them in. And it ran for six months and had, a, uh, I think, about 1.2 million readers across that six-month period. And all this is going to tie together because, as you can see, it's building towards something. It's building towards the idea of taking, store, taking my Batman experience which lends itself directly towards making comics and graphic novels, and then finding stories that you might think would not lend themselves naturally towards Batman-type storytelling, what we call sequential storytelling, and yet making it work. So let's go on from there and 
show, actually you can keep it on the slide here, and show how it begins to merge with my Jewish background directly. So I've created graphic novel and comics material for Jewish stories. Here you see Battle of Destiny. Battle of Destiny is the story of King David and King Saul and their rivalry and, of course, the battle against Goliath, the giant Goliath. And it was done for a production company, Crystal City Entertainment, that wants to turn it into a movie or a television show. Right now, we're trying to develop it as a Game of Thrones type show. We think uh, that would be a, a really cool way to go. And here on the left, you see an example of JewishCartoon.com, which is my weekly uh, newspaper and online cartoon. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, a newspaper is when you take the internet, you print it out, and you hand it to somebody, okay, just to define terms over here. Every week for the last many years, I've had a lot of fun taking a regular cast of characters, kind of a Doonesbury or for better or for worse, or even a Snoopy type cast of characters, and portraying the, uh, the struggles that we all encounter between trying to be modern and traditional, trying to be secular and trying to be Jewish, and doing it hopefully in a fun and funny way. And what you see here on the screen is a photograph of the entrance to the Munich Jewish Museum permanent exhibition. And the exhibition has a series of specially commissioned cartoons from jewishcartoon.com so that when people enter the museum, the first thing they see are comic strips that portray a storyline about what they're about to encounter in this museum which is the relationship between Jews and non-Jews in Germany, and specifically Munich, the birthplace of, you know. When I first received the email from the museum inquiring whether or not I would be interested in creating a series of comic strips around the Holocaust, I said, well, uh, I've got Art Spiegelman's phone number. Would you like to speak to him? And they said, no, no, Gorf, we'd really like to have you do it. Why? Because we feel that Newspaper strips with punchlines at the end will be a great sublime way of, of relaxing people as they, uh, relaxing is probably not the right word, of, of introducing them, of, of easing them into the challenges that are obviously going to create anxieties when you go through a museum like this as a Jewish person. So I thought about it and I thought, well, you know what? Um, punchlines, Holocaust doesn't seem like a natural fit by any means, but if somebody's going to screw it up, it might as well be me, so I'll take a crack at it. And I think that it went very well. You can judge for yourself online at jewishcartoon.com because so far they haven't taken a sledgehammer to the wall, and that's pretty much the only way that that's coming down. And what you can see on screen here is they have the comic strip silkscreen very large on the wall in German, and then they have English translations a little smaller at the bottom so that everybody universally can understand and be enlightened and hopefully even a little bit entertained by this storyline. And now let's bring all, so that, anyway, so that's Avalanche Comics Entertainment. So that's what I do. I take rough ideas, I filter it through my network of creativity, and I come out with stories. So you can see the arc, you can see the journey of my professional life. So it started as reading comics as a kid. I became a comic book professional on the greatest I'm going, to, I'm going to say it now. I'm going to go on record. The greatest fictional character ever created. And then I began to work with corporations and foundations on messaging. And then I segued into Jewish comics. And then I came to uh, working on the Munich Museum Project. And all this started coalescing in my mind. Now, I had a friend, a colleague, a former colleague at DC Comics, who said to me, you know, Gorf, uh, the holiday of Passover has always confounded me. I am not an observant Jew. Uh, I'm not even perhaps a religious Jew, but, you know, I have a strong Yiddish neshama. I have a strong Jewish soul. Can you make for me a graphic novel for somebody of my background? Some way of getting me past my intimidation with the Hebrew, perhaps, and uh, my, my, the rituals, how they confound me. I just don't know what to do. And particularly on Passover, it's so tough because I'm sitting at my table. I'm with my entire family. They're all looking at me to, 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 to run this thing, and I don't know what I'm doing. I only do this once or twice a year. It's not my background. You get the idea.
So I don't remember if the conception came from that discussion or if I had the conception of combining Judaism and comics together in a Passover Haggadah graphic novel beforehand, and he helped to really kind of shape the idea or at least the direction, but that's where it all started to come together for me. And I went on a journey in which I created with a wonderful team of supporters. I want to stress, nothing happens in a vacuum. You know, whenever I say I conceived, I created, come on. That's not what happened. What happens is you talk with people, you, you jabber a little bit, you hang out with A.J. Frost, and you talk comics for a half an hour or an hour, and the next thing you know, you're coming up with ideas. And then you talk with artists and writers and producers and funders, and you, you grow from the experience. We talked about crowdsourcing stories for the Microsoft Project. Well, that's, how, that's what brainstorming is. It's crowdsourcing, in a sense, ideas that get filtered through my network of creativity and come out as whatever the project is going to be. So in this case, the conception of doing a Passover Haggadah graphic novel became a nonprofit project, or that's a bit of a misnomer, a not-for-profit project, in which we had wonderful supporters who bought into the idea that we could use the quintessentially Jewish medium of comics in order to bring out the universal meaning, explanations, rituals, excitement, to borrow Eddie's word over there, uh, and, uh, and, and, and bring things full circle. Because without going into all that background right now, Jews created the medium of comics, then it moved into superheroes and away from its Jewish roots, and now we're bringing it right back again. So remember my initial question, you know, how is comics appropriate for, uh, for, for, for bringing out the, uh, or for combining with, with Jewish holy texts? Well, I couldn't think of anything that's more natural. It's as natural as music and Fiddler on the Roof, ladies and gentlemen. So given that, and A.J. and I are going to have a dialogue in a little while to dig into the Haggadah and Jewish comics and Jews in comics. And, you know, if you're lucky, he'll tell you about his uh, dissertation at Columbia University. <laughs> Let's go into how the kosher sausage is made. How do we make comics? Here we go. It begins with, as we said before, brainstorming or crowdsourcing. You need an idea. And in the case of the Haggadah, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, because it's complicated, we start with a page of translation written by the wonderful David Olivestone. This is the beginning of the Magid section. The Magid is the storytelling section of the Haggadah. It is the backbone of our experience, our table ritual, uh, where we have the mitzvah, we have the commandment of seeing ourselves as if we were coming out of Egypt right now. So by putting the text into comics, we are literally letting people see themselves as if they are coming out of Egypt right now. But it all begins with a source text. So as you can see over here, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Now, this source text is confounding on a number of levels. Number one, it's not really a narrative. It's a description about a food and maybe some imagery. So you don't really have a story over here. You just have some imagery and some allegory. That's number one. Number two, the original, which may be on the next page. You want to flip to the next screen? Let's see if I included the Hebrew. I did. Excellent. Okay. So the Hebrew, ha-lachma-anya, is written in Aramaic, which 2,000 years ago was the vernacular, was the Yiddish of its day. But nowadays, unless you're Mel Gibson, you're not going to be speaking a fluent uh, Aramaic. And you'll notice, by the way, that on this page over here, and you'll see it in the spread later on. You know what? I'll talk about it when we get to it. So we're on the brainstorming phase. And how do we develop then a narrative, a story, as we would expect a comic book or a graphic novel to have, out of this line of text? And let me digress for one second here and make an important point. The reason I call it a graphic novel and not comics is because comics is often maligned, I would say, as a kiddie or a children's medium here in the Western world. Whereas in Europe, it is a bona fide medium for adults, children, and evenly divided between the genders as well. It's easily 50-50 in readership. And if you go even further towards Asia, I mean, it, 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 it's arguably uh, on par, if not even more important than prose. And 
think about Asian languages, right? They're pictorial in their orientation. So I think it's only natural that a culture that grows up, and I'll say grows up with respect to them, not me, but with respect to them, that grows up respecting a language that is picture-oriented is, of course, going to embrace the medium of sequential storytelling. So we have a little ways to go, I think, in Western culture, and, uh, and we specifically call this a graphic novel with the hopes that people will understand that, yes, kids will like it, and we do behold or vador. We want every generation to embrace this and to continue with, their, with our Jewish story. But at the same time, adults will get as much out of it, if not more, as well. It's like a great Bugs Bunny cartoon, right? Kids watch it, ha-ha, it's funny on the surface, but adults watch it and they get the, the extra humor. It's like The Simpsons. It's like, uh, uh, well, it's not like The Family Guy, but you know what I mean. Anyway, so uh, here is part of the brainstorming process where Erez Sadok, our wonderful Israeli artist, was doodling while we were talking about what we're going to do with the source text. And you can see his mind was going in all kinds of different directions. You have regular people. You have kind of a lunkhead over here. You have a pharaoh. You have, uh, I don't know what this is. The, it, maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, Kenin lice, you know, the plague come to life. That's entirely possible. Anyway, so his, his hand was moving, and that's the way that he thinks. And I can relate to that because I was an inveterate doodler as a kid as well. You want to go on to the next page? And uh, that led to, of course, drawing Batman, and then it led to him drawing Joya, his dog. Uh, a plug for him here. If you haven't already uh, followed Erez Sadok and his uh, weekly Jewish, Jewish cartoon, his weekly regular cartoon called uh, A Bundle of Joya, thank you, you should, because it's funny, it's relatable, and it's great. Uh, and in case I don't forget, I know that this may not be the demographic for it, um, I've been pestered by eras to be better about social media because nowadays that is how you reach out to people. I would prefer personal ads in the newspaper, but, you know, that's me. Uh, so if you can, please follow us at Jewish Cartoon, at Jewish Cartoon, Facebook, Twitter, and, of course, Instagram. So if we go to the next page, we can see where this is all leading. To a script, here's how we begin to formulate the source text into a graphic novel page. The responsibility of writing falls into two categories for a comic book or a graphic novel writer. Number one, we have to write a shot description. We actually have to be kind of the screenplay, uh, the screenwriter and the director and the set designer and the special effects uh, guru and everything else all wrapped up into one because we have to describe for the artist what they're going to draw. And then, of course, every, every uh, uh, page from, or every panel, what we call the boxes, every panel in a graphic novel is, of course, going to encompass two components. One is going to be the art, but the other one is going to be the words, what we call the dialogue, the words that people speak. Sometimes it's in narration, which is uh, more of an explanation. Sometimes it's in dialogue. We'll get to an example of that later on. But for the sake of the people who can't see the screen, I'll read it to you. Panel one, exterior, outer space, full moon. We establish our time period with the full moon of the 15th of the Jewish month of Nisan. We're being symbolic and mysterious here. But not to worry, all will become clear in the succeeding two panels. And the narration has one word, this. Remember we had all those words before in the source text? And I chose just one word for the narration? Why? Ah, hang in with me, dear reader. We're going to find out. Panel number two, and on and on with the script. So let's go on to the next page and you'll see how this develops so we can quickly get to the dialogue between, between the wonderful A.J. Frost and myself. The next step, once we have the script approved by the editor... We hand it to the artist, and he does pencils. So he lays out in a temporary format the artwork so that while it's still in a proto version, we have plenty of time, ability to make changes and to adjust and to evolve the artwork so that we're not so far along that he's going to have to undo lots and lots of work, but we're far enough along that, as you can see on this page, we can already see the objects from the script taking place excuse me, taking form. Let's go to the next page. 
Here we have uh, an example from another project that I worked on. I, I put this in because sometimes I give this presentation to, um, to kids in school and to teenagers and uh, young families. So one of the projects I worked on most recently over here is from a, a tie-in for Paramount and Hasbro to the Bumblebee movie. And I was tasked as part of Avalanche Comics Entertainment to create a storyline that would bridge the Bumblebee movie, the most recent release from the Transformers franchise, to the first Michael Bay Transformers movie. And the reason I'm showing it to you is because I didn't have all the examples I needed from the Passover graphic novel, so I pulled some from Bumblebee to be able to show you other examples. And the second reason I thought was, well, because if you start to get bored and not off, as soon as I start talking about Transformers, you might perk up again. So there you go. This is an example of layouts or pencils from the Bumblebee store, and you can even see a nice big transformer in panel one over here. And after we've approved the pencils, we go on to inking. Inking is not tracing, to borrow from Chasing Amy, the movie. Inking is, in fact, adding dimensions or dimensionality to the pencil drawing in a permanent form. Because the pencil drawing, as you see, is being done in blue over here. It's kind of a tradition from the, the old analog days. If anybody used to work with photostats, so blue would be photo neutral. It would be almost invisible, like in the equivalent of, it, of invisible ink. So if you ink over the blue when you photostat it or nowadays when you scan it, the blue just disappears. And what you're left with is just the pristine ink work. So you can make all the mistakes you want. And you don't have to sit there erasing it or white outing it or any of that. You just remember in your head the lines you want to keep, and that's what ends up being in the final product. And by the way, I do a Jewish cartoon workshop with kids and uh, teens and families and summer camps and schools and JCCs and PJ libraries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've made thousands and thousands of Jewish-themed cartoons over the years that I've been doing this, sometimes in the Parshat HaShavuah, the portion of the week, sometimes in themes like uh, Israel or uh, advocacy or uh, Uri uh type uh, themes of, of uh, diversity and, uh, and so forth. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so we use the same tools that the professionals use, which means that I hand them what I call my magic blue pencil. And it's essentially that kind of photo-neutral or invisible pencil that the professionals use. It's not essentially, it is. And kids just marvel at it, because I don't have it here, but usually what I do is I show them a picture of, uh, of a drawing where somebody messed up and scratched it out and then drew the drawing they wanted to keep next to it. And I explained they didn't need to scratch that. All they needed to do, again, was just ink over it and leave alone the lines that there were mistakes. So then what I do is after holding up a photocopy of the original picture with the mistake, I then pull out from behind it a photocopy that was taken with the, uh, with the, with the image set to make the blue disappear. And sure enough, it's like, bing, the mistakes never happened. They just love that. Let's move on. So here's the page of the Passover Agadah graphic novel, the first page of Halach Ma'anya, when it's inked. And you can see that it's quite a bit developed. It's got quite a bit more dimension, such beauty, uh, than the original drawing. And no comic would be complete without bringing it into the four-color world. And here's where we go with coloring the next stage. Here is the Passover Gadah graphic novel page Halach Ma'anya in full color. And you can see, once again, more dimensionality is added to it. More vivid life is brought to it. And I should add that uh, Erez is a rather uniquely talented comic book artist or sequential storytelling artist, graphic novel artist. Many times in the, uh, in the process, the production process of making graphic novels, these jobs are divided up amongst uh, a variety of different people. It's... Um, what do you call it? It's a, a supply chain. What do you call it? Uh, Ford and uh, the when you have a, uh, an assembly line, it's an assembly line of people who are each performing their tasks in tandem. So you have a writer who writes and a penciler who pencils and an inker who inks and a letterer who letters and a colorist who colors and uh, and a reader who uh, buys and enjoys and hopefully doesn't complain online too much. And everybody has their job that they do. So Erez is unique because he can do everything. He is a graduate of the Bitsalel Academy, which is the number one art academy, not only in Israel, but in the entire Middle East. And uh, when I was first introduced to him by one of his professors, in fact, he proved to be an amazing talent. And now, holy cow, he's going to be the next great artist. 
just hands down, Jewish, not Jewish, everything, the, the, the best universal artist that you will see in the coming years. Mark my words, you heard it here, for, here first, folks, Erez Tzadok. Okay, lettering. So we place the text into the artwork, and the way that we do that is by, uh, and that's interesting, some of the art disappeared over here, but usually you see the artwork behind, that's no, okay, you can go on to the next page, where, where you were. Um, yeah, something happened that corrupted the PDF. But anyway, you see all these circles with numbers that correspond to the numbers in the dialogue page over here. And that's what we do. We do balloon placements. So we show the letterer. This is how we want you to lay out the letters so that the reader can understand how to instinctively read, intuitively read from panel to panel and not get confused about the order that they're supposed to be reading them in. And of course, give it beauty and clarity just as its own calligraphy or calligraphic uh, art, art form. And uh, after that, we put it all together. And then we edit it. And editing is the process, as you could, for anybody who saw The Shining, you can appreciate this little picture right over here. We, uh, we take out our red pen or our virtual red pen and we make all of our corrections and we do our post-production. And then we end up with the final spread. And you can see the final spread over here with the Bumblebee comic, albeit with a few final edits, balloons we needed to move around and post-its that indicate perhaps some typos in the artwork. But this over here is what every spread in the Passover Agadah graphic novel looks like. You've got the Hebrew and the transliteration on one side, and you've got the translation built into the sequential art on the other side. Now, that, uh, which part, the, uh, the graphic novel page? So if you're reading the graphic novel page, it's English style or American style because it's written in English, so it's left to right. If you're reading the Hebrew, it's right to, uh, right to left. If you're reading the transliteration, it's on the right to left page, but it's read left to right. And I could go on, but you ask a very good question, which was, when we were laying out this book, we had to figure out how do we make it not confusing for people when there are all kinds of different orientations for pictorial reading, for Hebrew reading, for English reading, so on and so forth. So if we did our job right, and I hope we did, it's immediately intuitive when you look at the pages how you want to read it. And also, you can come to it from any orientation you want. If you just want to use this as a utilitarian Haggadah, great then just read the Hebrew over here and you'll be, uh, you'll say your chovah, you'll fulfill your obligation. If your Hebrew is not, if Hebrew is not your uh, strong language, then you can read the transliteration. And if you want the story or you want, I should say, the explication because the Haggadah, as we said before, is more than a story, then you can read the graphic novel. But here's an interesting question and I don't know the answer to this. It's, it's going to be an open-ended question. This Passover, when for the first time you have people using a graphic novel to run their Seder or to participate in the Seder, how are they going to use it? If you're like my family, we go around the table and everybody takes turns reading a paragraph. Well, if you want to read the Hebrew, there it is. You want to read the transliteration, there it is. You want to read the translation, hmm, you're going to be reading a comic book out loud. How does that work? And what kind of experience will it be for people who are doing this for the first time? I don't know, but I ask anybody who utilizes the Passover Agadah graphic novel, this Passover, to please contact me. My information is in the biography page at the end of the book, but just for the record, it's gorf, like frog backwards, gorf at jewishcartoon.com. I really want to know. We talked about crowdsourcing ideas before. Let's continue the crowdsourcing. And after all, What's the purpose of Passover? We want to make the story universal. We want everybody to be involved, and not just Jewish people. We invite guests. The story of freedom and liberation and all of the, again, the theology and the rituals and the philosophy and the, uh, the Agadah, the homiletics and everything else, all of it is potentially enlightening to everybody. We should be or goyim. We should be light unto the nations, and hopefully this Haggadah is the next logical stage of evolution in that process of being the light unto the nations. So there you have it. And uh, I'll end this part of uh, the, the introduction with one question for you, which is, 
you've seen now the script for this first panel where we describe the full moon on the 15th of the month of Nisan and the first narration box which says this. So what's the relationship between this first panel, the second panel, and the third panel? And then how does it orient you to understand the structure of how we're going to be telling this story, as it were, in the Haggadah, in the Haggadah graphic novel? And what is the surface meaning? And then what are the, the depths, the layers, the, the forashim, the, um, uh, the, the roots. roots, exactly, the, the roots uh, and, the, um, and, and the, uh, the, the explanations behind it. I'm not going to answer any of those questions. I'm going to let you enjoy the journey, but I can tell you this. Nowadays, when, uh, when uh, the, the next generation, shall we say, when the next generation enjoys a, a, like a Marvel Comics movie, they look for the Easter eggs, that's what they call them, the hidden little tidbits that, that nerd culture enjoys so much because they can be proud of themselves. Okay, I'll speak about myself. I can be proud of myself that I understand that insidery reference. Well, we didn't put Easter eggs in the Passover Agadah graphic novel. We put roasted eggs inside. So uh, I hope that you will seek out the roasted eggs. But even if you do not, even if you just read it cover to cover as a graphic novel, you will still get something out of it. And that something might just be pure excitement. And for the first time, you'll enjoy the story of Passover in a way that, once again, puts you directly into the story so that you can see yourself as if you came out of Passover. So there you go. And now I turn it over to AJ. No need to clap. Uh, thank you, AJ, though. And, and thank you, nobody else. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist that one. So yes, yes. So we can turn off the presentation and we can jaw a little bit. But before I do, does anybody have any questions? Yes. I do. So I know you put it to us to figure out how to use this. Yes. You had to put some thoughts into so I'm just, I'm just curious, for those of us who experiment with other forms of having a Seder with a bigger family and are willing to incorporate new, new things, with this type of thing, I just want your opinion that, for example, that first page, which I don't have a book, so I couldn't read it real clearly, but the first page, would you imagine people reading somehow together or whatever, a section of the, of the cartoon page, and then making sure that they talked about how that relates to the story that came out of the old man Sheva's book. Right, right. Is, it, is that kind of what you pictured? Um, and by the way, uh, Manischewitz uh, is a, uh, an excellent... I'm in Maxwell House, forgive me. Yeah, I, I was going to say, um, maybe you had too much Manischewitz before you came here in the... Uh, <laughs> possible, right. And I, I was just going to say that uh, in the thank you section of this book, if you read closely, I have a couple of roasted eggs in there, and one of them is that I thank Rabbi Maxwell House. So you can enjoy that. There's another great story in here also, the official, um, I think I call it the official food of the Passover Argadah graphic novel is Season's Catsup. That's another favorite. In any event, to answer your question about I must have put some thought into how people would utilize the, the book and in particular uh, approach sharing the story or seeing depths in the story through the cartoon or the comics or the graphic novel pages. Um, and the answer to that is that a couple of years ago, we, meaning the Passover Godot graphic novel team, um, put out a beta version of this thing when it was really early on, you saw some of the layouts, some of the very temporary drawings and so forth. We actually published a version where we took those very temporary drawings with some word balloons. We only had about 15 or 16 pages of art at that time. And, uh, and we published about a couple thousand of them. And we sent them out to our crowdfunding supporters and to some Passover programs and into some synagogues. Because I, that question that you asked confounded me. And the only way that I could think to find uh, an answer, or at least approach finding an answer, was to, to put it in the laboratory, the real world, and, and, and figure out how are people going to use it. And in fact, I lead a communal seder, two communal seders, every single year, and I used the Beta Haggadah that year. And one of the things that I found was that it was a little bit, um, uh, how shall I say this? 
new, untested, how, how we get people to read from the English translation. I wanted them to do it, but I didn't know quite how to do it, because how do you do It's not like you say, okay, second paragraph, page three. No, you have to say it's the third panel, second narration box of page three. That's where we left off. All I knew was we were onto something that would be an amazing evolution of the Haggadah and a complement to the other Haggadot that are out there, and that we were blazing new trails and there was no easy answer. So if it seems like I'm kind of hedging or dodging, I'm really not. I thought about it. I tried testing it. I didn't come up with any specific answers. I'm waiting to see. I just don't know. So I hope in some way I've addressed the question. Any other questions? All right, AJ, let's talk. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Can I come over here? I would love to. So thank you again for presenting, um, for showing like an overview of the process of uh, creating this graphic novel. I guess um, my first question to you then is, um, what would you say would be the, um, the time span between like that initial idea to the final product? I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know what that lightning strike moment was where the idea came from. Uh, I've said, uh, I'm on a book tour right now, and I've been traveling since the beginning of February, and I will continue through the end of April. And I've been, uh, I've been in Florida, I've been in the New York, New Jersey area, I've been in the Midwest, I've been in Los Angeles, I'm here in Phoenix, Scottsdale right now, got in the right order this time. Uh, and uh, next week, uh, or no, I'm going right back to Los Angeles and San Diego and Nashville and Atlanta and all sorts of places. So I've talked with all kinds of people. And the question that always comes up is, okay, so where did the idea come from? It must have, must have specifically been, a, a, as I said before, a lightning strike moment. And the answer is no. It's sort of uh, uh, I, the idea came to me or I came to the idea. It's just it was a natural evolution and natural progress. But I can say that from the moment that we began the, uh, the fundraising process to the time that we published it was three years. Mm-hmm. And in those three years, what would you say beyond like trying to get the funding, what was the most practical challenge to overcome in terms of either like, you know, the storytelling element or finding like which ways to interpret a certain piece of text? Like, what was that? Besides, like, just the funding, what was the challenge? Right, so from a, uh, from a creative standpoint, yeah. what was the major challenge? Uh, the answer is that, as I touched on earlier, the Haggadah is not a chronology. One, as we say in our, our creative introduction, one page you'll be in Roman times, and the next page you'll be back in the times of the uh, forefathers and foremothers, and then the next page you'll be in modern times sitting around the table, and then in another page you might be in a, a, a fantastic vision of the future. We, in fact, uh, have one panel here where we envision messianic times. Um, that, w- that was interesting. So that, that leads to another challenge, which I'll get to in a second. But that means that there is no structure in the way that we Western consumers of culture can relate to that was at least apparent. So how do you create a storyline, a narrative that has, we talked about No Man's Land and creating a novel with rising action and B-plots, turning it to A-plots and and all that sort of stuff. So how do you make the two work together? That was the, the major challenge. And the second major challenge was I felt it was extraordinarily important to be um, faithful to the original text. Uh, there were people who said, well, why don't you abridge it? You know, make it short, it's too long. Or, you know, why don't you put an orange on the Seder plate and add all, of, all other modern kinds of uh, innovations. And by the way, Passover is wonderful because it's, it's not fixed in stone. You can be as creative as you want with it, and it's still Passover. It doesn't take place in the austere setting of a Beit Knesset or a synagogue. It takes place around your family table in the comfort of your own home where you're welcome to be yourselves. That's remarkable. And I can't think of another example in Judaism that's like that with possible exception of the Shabbat table. But even so, uh, having the actual ceremony take place at home, that's, that's original and that's cool. 
So, um, uh, so I would say the second challenge here was how do you remain faithful to the original? Because what's the reason for doing a graphic novel version of the Haggadah? Well, if we're going to abridge it in some way or we're going to add modern flourishes to it, it seems to me that we're, we're negating the very raison d'etre for doing this project, which is let's take this book that's been around for 2,000 years and is basically bulletproof. I mean, it's lasted for 2,000 years. How many more books can you think of that, that have, have uh, um, passed the test of time? Uh, so let's just bring out what's wonderful about it and, and what's great about it. Let's make everybody love it the way that Jews have loved it throughout history. But at the same time, how do you do that while remaining reverential to the source material? Because you've got archaeology in there and you've got um, uh, religious elements in there. You've got even, you know, you have a scene, uh, you have scenes all over the place that take place, let's say, again, in Roman times, right? You have the, the classic story of the five rabbis sitting around the table of B'nai Brak. And... Well, once you start, when you're talking about it, discussing it, it becomes very philosophical and very scholarly. And you talk about the meaning behind the words. But when you're trying to pair it with uh, sequential storytelling, suddenly you're thinking, well, what did the house look like? And where was the house situated? And what was the weather like? And what clothes did they wear? And was it brick on the wall? Was it stucco? And did they have a flat ceiling? Did they have an arched ceiling? And what about the Seder itself? Did they eat on a square table? Was it a circle table? Did they not have tables at all? Did they have individual tables? Perhaps they had one table, but they, then they had trays with tripods so that they could take away those individual meals because at that time, they didn't serve uh, individual meals. They served platters of food, and they would just keep replacing the platters once you were done with it, and on and on and on and on and on. And every single panel required this level of thinking. It's, it, it's mind-blowing. Did having an Israeli artist actually kind of then help? Because if he needed to say do like a research, like go to B'nai Brak, like you didn't have to go all the way across the world to you know check that out. But did it like help that he also had orientation towards the material already? Versus like if you were going to get an artist, I mean there are a million comic art, not a million, but there's a lot of comic artists that you know do freelance stuff. You can find them online. What was the importance of having Erez, you know, be Israeli that helped? Like, push the book you know, further than like another artist would. That's exactly what you just said, AJ. Uh, his very being made everything authentic because he lives in the land. And when I call for B'nai Brak, for example, he can walk outside and he can turn left and see ancient B'nai Brak and he can turn right and touch the stones of modern B'nai Brak. You know how, I, 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 well, I won't presume that you've had the same experience as I. I've had the experience of reading books that illustrate um, uh, Jewish stories. And they're not drawn by people who have that background. And something always feels a little bit off about it. Like um, the way the menorah is drawn, not, not quite right. Maybe it doesn't have enough stems because they didn't know. Or uh, you know the way that that boy is wearing uh, his kippah, his uh, yarmulke, his, his skull cap. It doesn't sit on his head naturally the way it would. So when you have somebody who is Israeli, I think immediately, and after all, um, Israel for uh, Israelis, that's their religion. Uh, whether they are uh, observant, uh, dati, or chiloni, uh, secular, regardless, uh, they are still religious. And they're religious because they live in our, uh, our birthplace, our, uh, our birth home. So I think that brought in... Uh, in uh, indescribable advantage to the project and helping to make it not only look authentic, but feel authentic. Did you look to illuminated Chagadot of the past as inspiration? Um, as you said before, you know, there's probably been no other um, book that's been reinterpreted, you know, through translation or visually the Haggadah. So were there particular ones that maybe piqued your interest as, as a, a way you wanted to go or maybe to not pull from that kind of tradition? People have asked me before about the tradition of illuminated Haggadot because there are many, and they go back hundreds of years. Uh, we can think of the Chick edition, for example. When was that from? 15th, 16th century, somewhere Chick, around there? Chick, Arthur Chick? Yeah. Isn't that from the 1940s? No, no. The, there was a, the, it's spelled like S-Z-Y-K. Yeah, no, I'm, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought it went back hundreds of years, but it's in the public domain, so they keep re-releasing it. In any event, 
Um, let's let's talk about the uh, the Maxwell House one, for example, and its uh, its precursors were using woodcutting type illustrations. And I'm, I don't remember because it's been a while since I really looked at it closely. But the Maxwell House edition may have picked up some of those drawings and utilize them because they have been passed down through many iterations. Or it may be that um, they were inspired by them and they redid them in more of a modern milieu. But uh, in any event, uh, the difference between what we've done and all the illuminated Haggadot that preceded is very simple. An illuminated Haggadah or an illustrated Haggadah has words and pictures that complement each other but do not work together in tandem. Um, whereas with sequential storytelling, you're literally, as I said before, fusing the words and the pictures so that they give each other context. And, uh, and, and this has, to my knowledge, never been done before, certainly never been done on the kind of professional DC Marvel Comics level that we've done it with, that we've done it. It's interesting you bring up um, DC and Marvel because I want my next question is kind of about the publisher you chose. So this book is published by Koren, which is known for, you know, pretty like academic um, introspection, uh, explorations of Jewish text, and Jonathan Sachs, you know, writes as many books for them. Um, what made Koren, you know, the perfect publisher for this book? Did they have experience with comics before, or is this something totally new for them and for you in terms of like finding the right type of publisher for this kind of material? Koren uh, was the right publisher for this book for practical reasons and also for creative reasons, as you described. For practical reasons, they are the gold standard of Jewish religious texts. Um, Koren is the name of the man who was a typographer, um, a calligrapher in the 1950s, if I'm remembering this correctly. And his conception was that he wanted to create a font uh, in those early days of the state of Israel that would be appealing to the masses so that he could bring a universality and, and a, uh, a modern uh, appeal to our most classic texts, so to uh, the Tanakh, uh, the Bible specifically, and also the prayer book, the Siddur, and so forth. And uh, so their Koren so um, uh, is already steeped, well, founded, in the idea of, uh, of using um, the illustrative arts as a conduit towards making works uh, universal and appealing. So they have that in their history. Uh, from a creative stand, oh, and again, from a practical standpoint, they have since grown into a company that has international distribution and strong marketing and so forth, so we knew they would get the book out there. They did not have any direct experience with comics and graphic novels prior to this. They took a leap of faith, and I think that uh, because they are probably one of the last publishing companies that you would ever expect to be publishing a book like this, because after all, they are uh, the, the very epitome of, of, uh, of holiness, um, we go back to the first question I asked that opened this entire discussion, which was, a comic book, really? And now, a comic book, really, published by Koren, the gold standard of holy Jewish texts? Seriously? But by taking that leap of faith and having the amunah, the, uh, the faith, uh, that this is the right medium and an appropriate medium for reaching out to people beyond um, uh, prose-specific uh, books, uh, by doing that leap of faith, uh, they gave us, uh, I would say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a, a validation uh, that, uh, that would not have come otherwise. Because there are plenty of people, I think, that will pick up this book and kind of wonder, well, I, I don't know about this. And they look at the Karen logo and think, oh, well, okay, if it's good enough for the company, the company of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, it's good enough for me. Um, can you talk a little bit about the crowdfunding process? Um, was it difficult, one, just creating an attractive product that didn't even exist yet? Because um, you talk about leaps of faith with Karen when they're finding a publisher, but with, when you don't even have, when you have some concept art, how do you know that people will flock to that project? And then having to update and constantly show that you're working on something. I mean, what, what were the challenges inherent in that process? And what was like the uh, invigorating maybe part if there was one. Sure, sure. Uh, before I address that, uh, you, did you have a question relating to the last? I remember when I was a kid, I used to do classic Yeah, classic illustrated. Which was sort of the same idea, right, of being a kind of story in comics. 
they would do Shakespeare and they would do Dickens and uh, right Moby Dick, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, do you recall whether Classic Illustrated used the original text word for word, or did they use some kind of a synopsis, or wasn't the original text? Right, right, right. So the the story told by them. Big difference because we're used to the text in this particular Haggadah that has a meaning to us, and that changing that around, leaving it out, would be a challenge. Yes, I think you're right. It would be a challenge to leave out some of the text, which is why we use all the original text as our uh, as our dialogue, as our narration. So I think that again gets into a difference between this. You know, why is this book different than all other books, right? So uh, I think, again, because the, the temptation is to make a synopsis. And, and before I use the word abridge, like leave something out, uh, but likewise, if you summarize the, uh, the book as opposed to using the original text, you're, you're missing out on stuff. Uh, and I'll get to your question in a second, AJ. Um, uh, note to self, don't drink seltzer as your uh, means of uh, quenching your thirst yeah, while, while speaking. Um, what can I tell you? You know, I have a, a little piece of Zadie in me. I love my salsa. So um, uh, I totally lost my train of thought as I was focused on salsa. What was I about to talk about there? Go ahead. Um, the question I, ha I had is, there have, has there been reviews of your Haggadahs by rabbis, scholars, and what have they been? So far, the reviews have been um, in the form of invitations to come and speak uh, in, on my book tour. And I have spoken with Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Non-Jewish, uh, all kinds of audiences. And I would say that uh, so far, nobody's thrown tomatoes. So I'm, I'm very grateful, because you know that is part of the Jewish tradition. We love questioning, and we love feeling uh, like you know the armchair scholar that's uh, smarter than thou. So if I did something wrong, somebody's going to point that out to me, and probably be very happy to point it out to me in no uncertain terms. So far, I haven't gotten much, if any, pushback. It's been uh, really gratifying. Uh, it seems like we're being embraced. Yeah, I, I, and I hope that continues. Uh, but again. I'm open to constructive criticism. This is a crowdsourcing and crowdfunding uh, project, and uh, and, and uh, it takes it takes a shtetl. <laughs> so about your crowdfunding question, yeah. so crowdfunding is a very difficult process to undertake because it takes a lot of preparation, and there's certain strategies, and I won't go into all that sort of stuff. And it really took over my life for two Pesachs in a row, or Chage Pesach in a row. Uh, where I was supposed to be with my family, and instead all I was doing was hitting the phone and hitting the laptop morning, noon, and night and trying to drum up support for this thing because we had a very narrow window in order to, um, to capture people's attention. Basically, between Purim and Pesach, that one-month window, that's when people are interested in, this, in a Passover project. Before then and after then, oh, please, you know, don't bug me about matzah. I don't want to know from matzah. I don't want to hear from matzah for another 11 months. Leave me alone. Uh, so it was challenging, and we, we uh, succeeded on two fronts. Front number one was we had over 150 individual supporters who did come to the crowdfunding uh, campaigns, two of them, uh, and have become sort of our small army of, uh, of marketers, of, of supporters. And then we also had some major donations from uh, major support from a few families uh, that really bought into it in a huge way and, and uh, as, uh, like, likewise, they not only supported us financially, but they also supported us with their ideas, their passion, their moral support, their scholarship, their connections. And uh, I should add that one of the things that we're hoping to do is to move into a phase two, and phase two will be a line of Jewish graphic novels. And we're just beginning the fundraising process over there. If there's anybody here who's interested in knowing more, we certainly welcome, again, not just your financial support, but your moral support as well. And uh, we hope that because this book will uh, be uh, a bridge between the generations and generate excitement around 
uh, Jewish continuity, and Jewish education, and Jewish identity. We hope that uh, we can continue to do that with all kinds of other graphic novels, more source texts, and books of history and philosophy, and I do my weekly Jewish cartoon. I have over 1,000 comic strips that I've drawn about uh, Judaism, and they've never been collected into a book, so we can do a book collection, and on and on and on. So we hope to have the, the pleasure and the, the blessing of being able to do those projects. Yeah, I suppose um, one of my final questions to you then is now that the book is out and released you know, to the public, are you, you know, nervous about reaction? Are you excited about the reaction? I mean, I mean uh, it must have been a thrill because this book was actually featured in the New York Times not too long ago. Um, is it surreal to hold the final product in your hands after so many years of, of you know, arranging every last detail, but now the last detail is of the reaction you can't really do yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. My standard answer to that is ask me on the, uh, the ninth day of Passover. Yeah. I, I, I'm numb to it all right now. I'm still in the throes of production. I'm still very much in that, in that head, uh, and it's very hard for me to feel anything about it. I just don't know. And that's kind of why, again, I'm looking for everybody else to tell me how I should be feeling because I just don't have that detachment. I don't have that objective 10,000-foot uh, view yet. Yeah, any questions from uh, all of you folks? What did I eat for breakfast this morning? I skipped breakfast, but thank you for asking. Ah, that's a great question. So, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Your, your check's in the mail or your book's in the mail. Where do you order books from? So um, after this program, we will be selling books and uh, offering them uh, for signing and doodling in them as well, if you want a little, little drawing. Uh, they're available online. Um, very soon, uh, they'll be available at jewishcartoon.com slash Passover if you want to get them autographed and doodled. And, and, uh, and I'm not able to come to your area. I'm sorry about that. But we are booking for 2020, so if anybody wants to bring us out for 2020, get in contact with us now. And all the great places that Jewish books are sold, I encourage people to support their lo local Jewish bookstore um, and, uh, and purchase it there. They're available online. It uh, shouldn't be too difficult for you to find them. But of course, I appreciate anybody who uh, gets it through jewishcartoon.com because it helps to support this project. Is this going to be on comiXology? Uh, we have an ebook version. Yeah. yeah, so it should be. And I think it's in comic book stores, too, because I remember giving Coren contact information for Diamond Distribution, which is the, uh, the main channel for distributing comics in uh, North America. So it'd be kind of cool to walk into a store and look, oh, they, oh, oh so here's, here's a joke for you folks. So I was going to say, look, there's Batman and Superman and uh, the, graphic no the Passover, I've got a graphic novel, and on and on. That would just be a cool juxtaposition. Uh, so, but here's a joke. How do you know that superheroes are Jewish? Anybody know? So exactly. So you have Goldman, Silverman, Superman, Batman. Actually, I have one another question. Yeah. Uh, would you find this book in the graphic novel section or the Judaica section? Well, that's a good question. Let's go into uh, a bookstore if we can find one and find out. All right. Yeah. All right. Let's all thank uh, Gore for coming out today. Thank you. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.